Mr. Platt, you have said that you believe Robert Pattinson looks like a low-rent Chris Gaines in The Batman. Um, I'm not answering that question. It's speculation. It's hypothetical. But you've said that, haven't you, Mr. Platt? You said that he was the most unintentionally funny Batman of all the Batmans. Or is it Batman? No, I, I haven't said that. Could you please play episode 111 of Mechanical Freak titled Gotham Sucks? Oh, no. Um, wait. Uh, hold on now. Hold on now. Uh, I believe that by just trying to mimic the grittiness of the Nolan Batmans. Batman. Uh, yes, Mr. Platt. yes. Yes. Uh, that it like like its lead just seemed like a pale shadow in comparison. See what I did there? Mr. Platt. It's because he's pale and he, he hides in the shadows. Fair enough. I'll grant you that. But you said that you thought that the Schumacher Batmans... Batman. Yes, the Schumacher Batmen were better than the Batman. Objection, Your Honor. Relevance. Order in this court. Order in this court. I might have said, yes, that I thought the Schumacher Batman were better than the Batman. But God damn it. It's true, everybody. Nipples on the bat suit aren't a big deal. And campy homoeroticism is kind of what Batman is all about. And you're supposed to be able to see what is on screen, for Christ's sakes. Don't you all remember a time when movies were supposed to be enjoyable to watch? Don't you remember when going into a movie at 5 p.m. didn't mean that you left the theater at midnight? Don't you remember what it's like to laugh? It says here that your main complaint is that, and I quote, our pats didn't even hang dong. Yes, that's correct. Welcome back to Mechanical Free from Seattle, that city of the future, on the bleeding edge of neoliberal dystopia. This morning, it's Morning Pod. Ooh. We're a morning <laughs> zoo show now because it's morning time. Bring on the sound effects. Yeah, so. get the soundboard, get the TMZ clips to play and comment on. <laughs> I'm just gonna laugh maniacally in the background while while you guys carry it. Um, we should have like some crank call-in people, you know, like people who we just call like the the turkey sandwich man or something, <laughs> who, like have their own, <laughs> own little bits. Uh, um, and it, well, it's afternoon in New York, I guess, huh? Well, yeah, yeah, it's my morning though, you know. Okay, you know how cool. it be? It's not healthy. You... <laughs> <laughs> your your circadian clock is. Uh, doing some cries for help yeah. right now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> can, can you get, can you still get a breakfast sandwich at the local bodega or is it too late? New York is the only place where you can buy a sandwich. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> You're good to go. You're in New York, baby. Wait, like, all you. day? You can get a breakfast sandwich <laughs> all day in you New want? York? Oh, I'm yeah. moving there. Yeah. <laughs> it really Every is block. the city that never sleeps. The city of pure magic. <laughs> <laughs> Wait. 
Do you guys hear that? I I think I hear the the platy wagon coming around the corner. <laughs> oh, that's a that's an old one. It's yeah, because it's morning and we're all refreshed. We can remember callbacks to two years ago. <laughs> but uh, guys, uh, I don't know if you saw, but the office of Office of Police Accountability uh, just gave its ruling on SPD refusing to wear masks throughout the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, finally, some accountability. Yeah, thank God. And uh, I just thought I'd read a couple of uh, standout sort of paragraphs here from uh, Erica Barnett's reporting on it in Publicola. Uh, here, uh, a new report from the Seattle Police Office of Inspector General found that the Office of Police Accountability, which investigates allegations of officer misconduct, routinely dismissed complaints from the public about officers refusing to wear masks as required viewing noncompliance as a cultural problem rather than individual insubordination. A spokeswoman for the OPA said the office, quote, does not investigate systemic issues, which are the sole purview of the OIG. The OPA did not sustain or meaning uphold any of the 98 complaints the OIG reviewed about officers ignoring the mass mandate. The report also found that SPD supervisors rarely disciplined officers, even for third, fourth, and fifth violations of the mask mandate, using supervisor actions, uh, meaning uh, you know things usually rever- you know, reserved for minor policy violations, in lieu of formal discipline. Um, so there you have that it. That is the, what works. accountability sounds like. <laughs> Hell yeah. That's so great. I, I love it. I mean, beautiful to just say as like the... Uh, the body charged with, uh, you know, investigating and yeah, holding accountable the police in this town. Uh, listen, we don't deal with broad systematic issues. What's more, <laughs> really, you shouldn't worry about it either because it's really just it's a cultural problem. It's really just a system. It's not just like system wide behavior. It's actually like a problem with the entire culture of policing. Um, or I think what they're saying is like, look, look, it's only a culture, cultural problem in policing because police are universally politicized as right wing. <laughs> and thus, that's the only reason this is happening. So like nothing to see here. Well, there's a subtle bit of uh, just neoliberal nuance in here that is a perfect uh display of how neoliberalism destroys all like institutions which is the opa is saying yeah uh the police systematically violate what was the law at the time <laughs> but uh because it's systemic there's nothing we can do about it. that's the inspector general's inspector general issue. yeah then the inspector general just said can you believe, guys believe what the OPA did or more likely didn't do in these cases? Crazy, right? <laughs> so everybody just points at each other and it's like, yeah, that's uh, that's uh, somebody else's job. <laughs> just send it on. There was a statement from the Inspector General's office on this? The report The report that's being read is from the Inspector General's office. Uh, oh, that's and fucking Inspector- funny. The Inspector General is basically just saying, can you believe this? And the OPA is saying, well, it's kind of their job to fix it. Yeah, Yeah, (laughs) just kick it around. Hot potato. Well, here, let's let's hear from the Inspector General right now, actually. So Director Meyerberg, who, by the way, was head of the OPA during Mm -hmm. this whole fiasco, but is now the head of public safety under Mayor Bruce Harrell. Um, (laughs) 
Director Meyerberg stated that no one in headquarters wore masks and related that someone had sent OPA a photo of multiple lieutenants, captains, and chiefs celebrating an event at headquarters without any masks. Director Meyerberg explained that he perceived the mass noncompliance as indicative of a serious culture issue within SPD and stated that it was not sustainable for OPA to be the thought police of the department. <laughs> and uh, again, just another hilarious uh, thing is like OPA basically like, look, it's not our job to police the police. All right. <laughs> the Office of Police Accountability says, look, it's not our job to hold the police accountable, guys. Come on. You know, Uh it's ridiculous to even think that uh, to even <laughs> assume or imply or as- think that they w- will do that. Like, I mean, they're the tone that they're striking is like, how how dare you even think that <laughs> this is our job? Like, obviously, it's not. <laughs> it's like, I don't <laughs> know. I mean, you're the OPA. Uh, <laughs> well, like, we're sort of yeah, we're sort of focusing on the the ludicrousness of like saying like, look, we can't investigate systematic issues. That's not our problem. Kicking it away, but like. To some extent, uh, in the very, you know, very like constrained and weak regulatory power that they have, there may in some sense be some truth to that. But the thing to understand is that if uh, the OPA, if this whole system was at all interested in doing actually holding cops accountable, they would use the power they do have by saying, hey, this is a bigger systematic issue. Obviously, we are unequal to the task with our powers of dealing with this. But, you know, what we can do is we can just ding every fucking cop that we get a fucking evidence on breaking the fucking law uh, and and cause a major fucking problem for them. I mean, that would be the thing you would do if you were actually interested. Mm. But their response, the sort of neoliberal, you know, democratic governance response is like ah oh, that would that would be a big mess and cause a big problem would cause this to come to a head in the police department uh would would be a big would not be like the smooth operating of uh our little system here uh it would be a problem so fuck it never mind yeah well luckily the state got involved at some point and uh let me read you this little bit about the state involvement which is pretty funny uh, according to the report, both the OPA and SPD treated officers' refusal to comply with mass mandates as, quote, a minor dis- non-disciplinary issue. Even after the State Department of Labor and Industries penalized the department on two separate occasions for serious violations of state law. For the first violation from February of 2021, L&I fined SPD $5,400 and outlined a course of disciplinary action including progressive discipline for officers cited for failing to follow mass rules more than twice. LNI ultimately closed that complaint because officers were using various tactics to slow down disciplinary proceedings against them, making it harder for the OPA to investigate and punish officers who wouldn't wear a mask. So, all this, so two funny things, right? <laughs> that basically... Uh, we're coming to this admission that the police don't have to do anything they don't want to do. Something we've basically said on the show all the time. But I like that state agencies now are basically just saying this. Like, we really can't make the police do anything. But the funny part was, is if you really caught there, what LNI did was like, oh, the, the SPD is using us to foot drag the OPA. And because the OPA is set up to hold the police accountable rather than LNI, what we'll do is we'll back off and let the OPA do its job. Uh, and then, you know, Flashback two minutes ago in this podcast to see what OPA did. 
Yeah. <laughs> I mean, just incredible. Well, that wasn't the only time that L&I got involved. So L&I's second citation from July of 2021 involved multiple, multiple complaints that officers weren't wearing masks while responding to public demonstrations. Although the agency couldn't interview any of the officers involved in the second complaint because they were all on furlough or refused to cooperate, L&I just issued a $12,000 fine. So, I mean, many things to talk about here, but the funniest part is, once again, I, I love the just bland admission at all points that, again, the police are not beholden to anybody. Like, they could just do whatever the fuck they want. And it's just a general admission by everybody involved at this point. Like, yeah, yeah if they, well, the if fines they are a joke, too. It doesn't yeah. even, wouldn't matter if it was a fucking million yep. dollars. Yeah. Like, that doesn't affect anyone in the police department or the department as a whole. Their budget shortfalls will always be covered. They're over budget every year. And that's just comes out of the the city's uh account like it doesn't have anything to do with anything they just find the the city like that's twelve thousand dollars of something else that we can't have you know it's a line item in like the city's budget that just yeah. like shifts from just one like to another. every other all the fucking lawsuits you know doesn't matter yeah and i mean whereas at least the lawsuits i guess represent a, a amount of money that should at least make city officials go whoops lost another million dollars yeah. Uh, twelve thousand dollars is literally nothing. <laughs> like the same, yeah. I just laughed as they like, you know, shook some quarters out at the, you know, L and I. But this has been a problem with OSHA and L and I for a long time. Um, I don't know if you guys remember, like ten years ago in Texas, there was a fertilizer plant that just fucking mm-hmm. exploded and killed like <laughs> five people, and it was like right next to a nursing home and shit. They have been fined multiple times by OSHA for the extremely dangerous operations at the plant, the way they were storing things. And every one of those fines started at like $10,000. And then you just appeal it to, you know, whatever local judge. And they always knock it down to like (laughs) $1,000. It's like, (laughs) given the choice of paid $1,000 or, you know, spending millions like reworking your plant, of course, they just paid the $1,000 fine, which shows up like once every 10 years. And it's, of course, just a write-off. And I mean, part of this is about how these agencies are just thoroughly gutted. Like L&I, OSHA, et cetera, are just thoroughly gutted. And, you know, I mean... The, the story, part of what's funny about it is it's all the different ways that like neoliberalism has made the world the way it is, right? You know, uh, built it in its own image. Uh, fantastic stuff. Mm-hmm. I, uh, <clears throat> and I, there was a bunch of people that replied to this of like, uh, get over it, we're not mer- wearing masks already. Uh, but seeming to miss the point of, look, the state mandated the police department do something, and the police department told the state to go fuck itself. And when the state tried to investigate it, the police department told them to go fuck themselves again. <laughs> and the end response is everybody just puts their hands in there and says, what can you do? They're rascals. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know? the state was like, I guess we'll go fuck ourselves. Yeah, I guess so. Like, I mean, we shouldn't have given them all those tanks and guns, because now it's getting kind of hard to tell them no. <laughs> our bosses told us what to do, and that's what we're going to do. Yeah, and I, you know, and I, yeah, and it gets to the point of like who runs the city, which brings you that's to another very funny uh, sort of bit that that you found, Munya, um, from Chicago, uh, where our favorite mayor uh, came out of her hobbit hole and was giving a speech, I guess, pushing for some sort of legalized gambling within Chicago's city <laughs> limits. And I just want to, to read these two tweets from somebody who was there at the event. Um, so first, we, 
Chicago must, and they're 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 uh, paraphrasing Lori Lightfoot here. Chicago must and will pick a location for a casino, <laughs> despite rising opposition from members of the city council. Lightfoot tells reporters after her speech. Chicago needs a casino, Lightfoot says. There's no other option for paying for Chicago's police and fire pensions, she adds. So, <laughs> again, just another beautiful depiction of modern America. Uh, <laughs> one, how do we fund things publicly? Do we raise uh, taxes on the wealthy? Do we uh, maybe put in some sort of business tax or something like that? No, 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 no. Let's uh, create a casino operation run by the city (laughs) (laughs) to defraud and rob the poorest people in the city. (laughs) Incredible. I mean, yeah, it's an old story at this point. Like, Mm. but uh, more and more places are uh, turning to that. I mean, it's going to be every in in 10, 20 years. There's going to be casinos everywhere in America. Yeah, it's the the last way to like uh, run civic operations. Yeah, when uh, sort of the like Tea Party Republican governance of Indiana basically bankrupted the state, they just switched over to they like legalized gambling across the state, which is kind of funny because Indiana was always one of those like very crackery fucking, you know, uh, gambling's bad, you know, Bible, you know, sort of not in the Bible Belt, but Bible Belt bullshit kind of states. Mm -hmm. And uh, the second they like had a revenue shortfall, they were like, well, we could raise taxes or just get, jettison all the uh, bullshit morality we claimed we had <laughs> and then bring in casinos. And the funny part was my brother worked on one of the casinos being built like it's on the outskirts of Indianapolis, I guess. And he was telling me that the company that built the casino very smartly put up a tent with a bunch of like games and stuff in it and a check cashing facility. Right. So all the construction Fuck. workers, like at the end of the week, when they got oh their God, check, no would just way. go over and cash their check at the little tent casino, play the casino games, and just so they essentially like built it for free, <laughs> like free labor. Yeah, <laughs> incredible. That's that is up, man. crazy. Well, like even the the sort of uh, you know uh, cracker morality you mentioned, Brian, like that it was the sort of rhetoric against casinos in places like indiana and a lot of places for a long time was was not like was really was like a moral thing about like uh the moral degeneracy of Mm -hmm. casinos right not on it was not a uh argument about like class exploitation or something it was about uh yeah like you know not having a degenerate element within the community and under as you know, we've shifted into this neoliberal world that uh, takes on that same sort of mentality takes on a different meaning uh, where you can say like, yeah, we're, we need casinos now, but it's OK because it's only going to affect the morally degenerate fucking gambler. Yeah. Uh, so it's only going to, you know, we yes, we have homelessness like uh, in astonishing numbers. But it's because uh, these people like made their choices uh, and are, you know, yeah, some kind of moral degenerate, uh, which is why they're, you know, on the street and addicted, et cetera. So, yeah. like, yeah, nothing's really changed in the sort of morality of America, but like uh, just yeah. how we uh, process it, maybe, or use it. 
Yeah, and it, it's worth noting that, like, in Chicago, the police are, I think, 48 or 49% of the city's budget. Uh, it was one of the cities where they funneled all the COVID relief funds to the police department. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's also, like, vastly increasing the budget of the police department. And it was very funny that other people just responded, like, it's it's hilarious that just not giving the police so much money is not an option. <laughs> like, like that's <laughs> just not an option, right? Like, maybe lowering the p- police budget to pay the police pension is a yeah. way to do this. But, like, no, nah, uh, that is not on the table. Sorry. Uh, casino. <laughs> that is that is a more rational in the eyes of like neoliberal capitalist response to this crisis is yeah, just basically casinos. getting like Marty and Wendy Bird from Ozark to like just like regional <laughs> casino magnates to like hold his whole city hostage basically <laughs> yeah that's the funny part too because I mean I guess there's a version of this where like the city itself operates the casinos but of course that's never no, how it works no it's, uh, no. it's, it's going to be Marty and Wendy Bird yeah, yeah they'll, take, <laughs> they'll take a fucking cut the city's going to yeah. take a big cut but somebody else is going to get fucking rich on this shit and then you'll have you know you'll have a whole casino district or something eventually yeah yeah, and an awful lobby that you know have to deal with, along with the real estate lobby oh my and the god. police. Oh union. god, yeah, I can't imagine like Vegas's like casino lobby in Vegas. Yeah. Like you know, like uh, it's it's something. It's something to behold. So yeah, I mean, every it year w- would attract definitely wouldn't attract like the shadiest like characters like in business either. Like you know. Um, yeah. people who have interest in owning casinos. I mean, well, luckily <laughs> Chicago has no history of organized crime. Yeah, so, but it's going to be like, dude, it's going to be like Chinese money investing in it too. Yeah. You know? Oh yeah, like I mean, why wouldn't you? Right? I mean, the first three weeks of the NFL season alone, like all those Bears fans just fucking that. That's a billion dollars of profit right there. <laughs> Chicago residents betting on the Bears the first betting three on the weeks Bears, of the yeah. season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, that's like, the police's budget right there. That's just money in your pocket, right? Uh, the easiest bet in all of sports. Um, but yeah, well, going from one casino to another, uh, there was a tweet that, uh, as the kids like to say, did numbers this week. And uh, you know what, guys? It did numbers in our DM as well. We chatted quite a bit about it, didn't we? I like Indeed. to give people, I like to give people a peek behind the curtain sometimes. Yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> listeners deserve that. But we had <laughs> we had a tweet that came out the, uh, from some guy, Neil Nasty. I'm sure his real name uh, says, "My homies that work at Wells Fargo just told me that they fired 550 mortgage processors this morning. Clearly, they know what's coming." And we talked about this a little bit, and I uh, I wanted to, you know, in the chat, and I kind of wanted to read you guys a couple of excerpts from articles from Fortune Magazine, the New York Times, so maybe we can get behind, get an idea of what's coming, yeah. right? So this is from Fortune. It's titled, and I hate this. This is the newest trend. This is caused by online shit, but uh, headlines too long these days, guys. Shorten your headline, right? There shouldn't be multiple sentences in a headline. I'll just say that. Yeah. This couple, hey, you clicked, man. I, I, you know, here I am, right? So <laughs> they got me. This couple just bought a house for all cash in one of America's hottest markets. Here's how they did it and what it feels like. I'm already pumped. So the sound of a gunshot ringing out at 2 a.m. was the last straw for Lori and Tim. After seven years in their Oakland home, they decided in mid-2021 to head north to Portland, Oregon for a safer neighborhood for their children. Wider. A slower pace yeah, of I, living. <laughs> yes, immediately, yes. like, first of all, like, 
what happened here that you moved into an Oakland neighborhood seven years ago? And well, I guess their plan was like, we're going to be the settlers here of this gentrifying neighborhood. And it didn't happen fast enough. Is that it? Or like they thought they, they got out of college uh, and got like, you know, tech jobs and we're like we're not racist we can live in oakland and <laughs> and then they realized after seven years no we are we need to go to portland as a matter of Whoops. fact we are ra- so racist that we have to go to like the whitest city <laughs> I, yes i mean like you know oakland maybe only detroit is like mo more associated with like blackness in the american mind right yeah. you know than oakland and Portland, I mean, is there a, I mean, the, a whole TV series was made about the fact that Portland is the whitest city in America, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, the irony of this is it, it does show like the, the extent to which people's brains, it's still 1970. Because in their yeah. mind, like what they're picturing is Oakland is this crime ridden, extremely black, whatever, like, you know, hellscape, you know, escape from, you know, New York style hellscape. Yeah. Uh, Oakland is like fully gentrified. I don't know if you guys have been around Oakland lately. It's it's like, it feels like (laughs) Seattle, you know, like, like everything in the Bay area is a, it's so domesticated and just like gentrified to up the yin yangs. Like all of the buildings that you see are like new developments. You see the trendy coffee shops and stuff. You see a bunch Mm -hmm. of houses getting bulldozed and getting turned into like, you know, luxury apartments. Like it's why, 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 (laughs) Wouldn't it? It's like in the tech capital of the world, really, you know, like, I mean, (laughs) you get you get like half a mile outside of Oakland for miles and miles. And was it Contra Costa County is like just suburbs like the east side, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and I I mean, just peeking at the sort of real estate, you know, apps and their sort of median and average home prices for Oakland. They they tend to range between seven hundred and fifty thousand to a million dollars. Yeah. So I mean, you know, I don't want to equate poverty with crime and things like that, but in the American mind, that is an equation, right? Like yeah. pover- poverty equals crime, and it's like uh, you're living in a very rich neighborhood. <laughs> it's one of the richest neighborhoods <laughs> in America, honestly. It's not rich enough for them. It's not gentrified enough. Like that's yeah, why they I moved get- in seven years ago. They're like, hey, Oakland's on the come up here, like. This is great. And it's just, it's not enough for them. It's not as rapid. It's like, it's like if someone like moved out of Williamsburg in like 2014, because it just wasn't gentrified enough as it would have been. They might have like settled in like, you know, 2007. You know what what it is? (laughs) People like this, like somehow instinctively and because of the, the history of, you know, the last 70 years and the, the narratives about the, you know, urban America and its trajectory and stuff. Somehow they thought they saw Oakland's on the come up. Look, the fancy cafes are coming in. The home values are rising. It's time for uh, us naturally uh, suburban uh, white people to move back and reclaim the city. Mm. And somehow deep inside them, they believed whether consciously or not that there would be a, a full on dramatic black flight from urban yeah. america <laughs> right <laughs> and like that has happened there has gentrification has happened we have forced poor people and uh black people out of american inner cities that they were able to move into uh, or were always in in some places um but it hasn't been like as but it's been they've been forced out right like 
slowly over time, uh, slowly displaced. And there's still black communities like hanging on. Um, whereas like white flight in the sixties and seventies was like, everybody just grabbed their bags and fucked off because they could, you know, like there was, no one was forced out. No, no white people living, uh, in cities were forced out to the suburbs. They just were like, um, sounds like we like it better out there. And so they're doing, they're like, that didn't work. So now we have to white flight ourselves to Portland. Yeah. And I mean, and to give an idea, I mean, this gentrification has like forced out the black population yeah. of Oakland. Um, there's a, you know, this from an it's article, enough. this from an article, a local Oakland paper, right? Saying that basically this is in 2021 saying that over 2020, the black population of Oakland dropped 14%, continuing yeah. wow. a 40 year trend. Jesus. In 1980, Oakland was 47% black. In 1990, residents only made up 44% of the population. And it's continued to decline. It's somewhere in the 30s. I thought I saw this point. Uh, Yeah. I mean, uh, just like in Seattle, a total uh, sort of gentrification creates this whirlwind that just throws the poor out to the excerpts, right? And, you know, uh, you see a similar thing in Seattle. I mean, Seattle never had much of a black population to speak of, right? It was never particularly large. But what it did have has all been lost. And and it didn't go far. It just went to, like, federal way and the excerpts, you know, and things like that. Rentum. Yeah. But it it was never complete either. Like, there are still Mm. black communities hanging on in dwindling numbers slowly over time. Yeah. But, like, you know, which is not the same character as what happened in inner cities in the middle of the last century in America, where white people almost to a person over, like, a 10-year period left completely. Yeah. So, I mean, just fascinating start to this. Uh, A lot of uh, particularly American psychology at the beginning. All right. Luckily, the 44-year-olds were able to use money from the sale of their house in Oakland, as well as savings and a small inheritance to forgo (laughs) the traditional mortgage process and pay for their new home in full. They mortgage put in, brokers hate him. One weird <laughs> trick. <laughs> this is this whole article is that one weird trick. They put in two <laughs> offers that got rejected before they were able to close on their current home in February for eight hundred and fifty-two thousand, around one hundred thousand over the asking price. Given that they have another fifty thousand dollars in untouched savings, Lori and Tim are a lot like the rest of the near millionaires reshaping the housing market. Near. Jesus. They I'm sorry. Mo- they are millionaires. <laughs> okay, guys. Yeah. What? what are you talking about? They only about? have $999,000, <laughs> Amunia. Yeah, in, in liquid cash that they can dump into a house. Like, we're just talking about financing, like, a near million dollar house. It's not like they, like, liquidated every single asset they have right. and, like, their 401ks yeah. and shit. Like, right. like you know... Yeah, you're not spend you're not dropping that money if you don't have a 401k and fucking stock options and shit somewhere, you know? Look, you guys are being very mean to Lori and Tim, but uh they might own a housing asset worth seven figures, but they had to liquidate most of their investments and savings to buy it. Show me the facts on that. And they feel so cash poor, they oh. had to take out a loan after the fact 
just to get some spending power back. They feel, just, they just feel. Some, They're not even like, by definitionally money. cash poor. They just hey, feel that way. Well, I just, they went to their bank and were like, can, can I hold a hundred? Can I hold a hundred grand? Yeah. <laughs> you know, let me hold a hundred. Not one sentence prior, they mentioned they had $50,000 untouched in a savings account. Untouched. Like, like, could you imagine looking at that 50K in your bank account and being like, fuck, I wish I had some money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just incredible you love it you love to see it well so they pivot now to give us the trends here all cash offers are increasingly preferred they accounted for 28 percent of home purchases in 2020 and 32 percent in 2021 jesus according to Zillow. right they have however Whoa. fallen slightly this year making up a quarter of the total sales nationwide in february so they fell slightly to 25 percent okay Oh, let's go back to only uh, one of four huge. houses sold in America. Yeah, are let's, let's, cash. Okay, let's go back to to, to my homies at Wells Fargo. I'm starting to get an inkling to why the uh, home finance department might be getting liquidated. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, the buyer is changing. I mean, the whole basis of home buying in this country for a long time has been uh, for housing, and uh, with. Uh, uh, financing because like middle-class people were buying homes. So now it's banks, uh, real estate companies and rich people are the only, are Private like increasingly the people who happen. are uh, yeah. buying homes to live in them or to rent them or to hold them as an asset. Let's, let's get a, a little more backstory here. Tim, who works in marketing at a tech company and Lori, who is a photographer I guess we know who's paying the bills. Rich. <laughs> yeah. So they feel lucky they were able to find a home that checked off all their boxes near white people. But it doesn't <laughs> feel good to be cash poor, laureates. <laughs> they plan to apply for a home loan soon, a strategy known as delayed financing, which will essentially loan them back some of the cash they spent on their home. Cash yeah. buyers. Oh, good. <sighs> I. Just the phrase cash poor. It's like we have to find a way to describe ourselves as, as like the victim here. Like, we got it. There's got to be something, anything. We're reaching. We're trying to find anything that makes this sound like a struggle. And all you can come up with is cash poor. That's mm -hmm. just another word for rich. That's it. That's all it is. I, I love, too, that they basically reverse engineered the mortgage where they bought in all cash and then didn't supposedly didn't have any cash. So they took a loan out against their house after the fact. I mean, what what is that? Bought a mortgage, you yeah. know, like, well, um, it, oh, like they needed, uh, is the interest rate like less? Like, I, I'm sorry, but well, it, you're it just borrowing all, against the equity of your home. It was but also it, they could open their bank app and go mm, 800K mm, like it's supposed mm -hmm. to be. Well, look, I mean, that's nothing. <laughs> you you know, using the equity uh, in your home to get a low interest loan is nothing new. You know, no, more usually, you know, people have thought of that as refinancing because, um, you know, they're they've already bought their home with uh, uh, all, with financing. But like, I guess what that says is if you reverse that, like the question would be, why didn't they get a loan in the first place? Yeah. And I, I think the idea must be that having cash just makes it easier to make to get this make the sale um, because it's less complicated and you can just uh, write a check for the shit. There isn't as many steps. So your offer is more attractive when you're competing against you know, 
2000 people trying to buy fucking housing plus banks and other shit who who are coming in banks and big companies you know private equity of one kind or another is coming in with cash to buy these things so you got to if you want to be on the same playing field uh you you have to come with cash yeah they, right. they make a point later in the article that you're that you're 400% more likely to close on the house if you offer all cash up front mm-hmm. it's you know um all right let's hear a little more so Cash buyers like Lori and Tim aren't showing up to open houses pushing wheelbarrows full of cash. I mean, you know, no, you write a check. Real estate <laughs> agents say, and they don't necessarily have $1 million sitting in a checking account. I, they, that's how they wrote the check. They literally they, mentioned that she wrote a check. So they did. They, they did. They had to. At the time they bought the house, they did. Yeah. But they are able to easily liquidate an investment account or sell uh, sell other assets to get the money necessary okay, to close. No, I'm sorry. The, like <laughs> st- liquid, like stocks that you own on the stock, like New York Stock Exchange, that's cash. That if you yeah. press a button, you can instantly liquidate that no problem with like its actual value um, being pegged every second. That's that's liquid cash. There's no difference. The only difference is that the value fluctuates up and down a little more than the U.S. dollar does. Like that. You can't call that like an illiquid asset or like something other than cash. Sorry. They even said they can readily liquidate it. This is all in Mm. service of like uh, demonstrating, uh, reproducing this phony, fraudulent notion of cash poverty. Yeah. Like that's all this, like uh, this whole section is just about like uh, making that somehow a valid concept that's worth uh, describing them as or mentioning in this article. It's not real. What is yeah, it's well understood by anybody that half a brain. Like, no rich person keeps cash on them, right? You you yeah. turn the cash into investments, right? So that you can make that passive income, maybe, right? But yeah, it's the the whole thing is nonsense. It's like it mentions in the article she wrote a check for eight hundred and fifty thousand whatever the house was. So she had a million dollars in her bank account. Like I, I'm sorry, like either that. What if she, she, wrote, what if she like she subscribed to overdraft the, protection yeah. because she like completely zeroed the account? <laughs> it was like eight hundred and fifty two thousand dollars exactly, and like couldn't have like the recurring Hulu purchase happen anymore without it like overdrawing. Well, she was like kiting the check on Friday at five p.m. and being like, they're not going to realize till yeah. opening on Monday that this check is bounced. <laughs> we got three days to claim squatters rights yeah. um, <laughs> so, so uh you know our real estate nerd says sometimes the money it's still crisp it's been transferred from a recent home sale or closing or crash or cash it in on stock options again i just love this like they didn't show up with eight hundred fifty thousand crumpled one dollar bills yeah. right you know? <laughs> this this wasn't this wasn't like money that had been like rotting and getting moldy in a bank account for for years okay this isn't you know like a like a rich person this wasn't like in gold coins in a like a scrooge mcduck style uh <laughs> vault pool like you know, this was uh, this was newly printed, man. This was like they had to they had to scrounge this together. Yeah. Right, well, the main types of all cash buyers include second time buyers with equity to spend, millionaires like Lori and Tim, wealthy foreign buyers, or someone with access to family money. <laughs> you know, <laughs> regular salt of the earth people. Then there are the real estate investors who pay all cash to build up their portfolio. Again, I mean, just salt of the earth characters. Rising mortgage interest rates aren't necessarily a deterrent for these groups. They're not financing their purchases anyways. <laughs> that said, like cool. Lori and Tim, <laughs> many leverage cash to close on a property in a competitive market and then finance after the fact. And again, it's like, 
borrowing against your assets is like what rich by the way that's what tesla or what uh, tesla Jesus, that's what elon musk just did today right when he bought yep. twitter you know he's, he's borrowing against tesla which is pretty funny but uh we'll see how that plays yeah out. those but, details of that that financing structure is insane we were probably covered at some point yeah but like yeah borrowing against your assets also is just like a rich person thing to do you know like no I, literally yeah. i mean like when when um you know Zuckerberg or Bezos or whoever, you know, whatever, like tech CEO and founder um, would uh, say that, oh, we get paid one dollar a year in salary. Right. And like, of course, they have like stocks, but they'll just keep those stocks, won't sell them because they don't want capital Mm -hmm. gains and just borrow against those stocks and, you know, pay whatever five percent. That's like less than, you know, capital gains tax would be. So it's actually worth it to just borrow against your stocks, you know? Yeah. Yeah. By taking out loans instead of a salary, you pay less in taxes, right? You essentially get dinged less, you know, but yeah, yeah incredible stuff. I mean, uh, so going on, all cash offers became more common across the country during the coronavirus pandemic, but they're especially prevalent in more expensive markets like Aspen, Boston, Houston, Miami, New York, and San Francisco. In Palm Beach, Florida, 55% of closed sales were all cash in February of 2022. Um, in Los Angeles, we're seeing all cash buyers, even north of two and a half million dollars. And even in some of the most expensive areas from Woodland Hills to Beverly Hills. Um, yeah. (laughs) Oh my God. Jesus. The base home buyer is changing. That is what's happening in housing, right? This is why just building more housing isn't a solution, right? you have to do something about the massive inequality that allows this to exist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. These buyers aren't necessarily boomers and Gen Xers. Some millennials and even older Gen Z workers in higher paying fields like tech were able to save money throughout 2020 and 2021 while watching their investment balances. Oh, balloon. cause they weren't going out and getting, you know, coffee. They weren't getting yeah, that Starbucks. Avocado toast. So, yeah. That's, that's how they did it. Uh, just stuck at home, not eating out and spending frivolously. Hey, I mean, they might even have cash from liquidity events like an IPO or even crypto gains. <laughs> 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 and so this guy finishes uh, this is a real estate goon. There's so much more cash out there than we've ever seen before. A lot of people stayed home and made money during the pandemic with their stock investments in their portfolios. And I thought that that line was so great because it also says everything about what happened during this pandemic who got fucked and who didn't yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> like capitalist class pandemic's going great <laughs> <laughs> it's awesome <laughs> going gangbusters well there was there was more to this story I, I i just had a feeling that fortune magazine was not giving us the whole details of what's going on here and so i had to go from the business press to a lefty rag, a little Maoist paper uh, that you get on any street corner called the New York Times. <laughs> and they had a piece that came out yesterday, actually. It's called Why the Road is Getting Even Rockier for First Time Home Buyers. In booming Sunbelt, uh, in booming Sunbelt markets like Charlotte, the increasing influence of real estate investors buying up houses, especially at the lower end of the market, and turning them into rental properties is exacerbating the shortage of houses for sale, driving up prices and putting home ownership out of reach for many first-time buyers, the biggest losers in today's market. <laughs> They're right. We are the biggest losers. Yeah. That's for well, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Got me there. 
<laughs> like at some point, like so many people who are have found their way somehow still into some kind of middle class living. They're still thinking to themselves, well, yeah, I got to buy a house. The thing to do is buy a house. And it's just looking harder and harder. But they're still, I mean, I know people who are like, well, you know, like, yeah, but I got to get in. I need to buy a house so I can stop paying rent so I can get on this whole thing. This this sort of the 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 middle class deal of the last century, the uh, opportunity to build wealth through owning real estate that you need to live in anyway rather than paying rent to a landlord and like at what point like obviously a lot of people are just going to be forced out of that market you know whether they want to or not but there's going to be like a a rung of people who maybe have a choice you know to like well i could get the loan i could spend the nine hundred thousand dollars on a house in uh, Seattle, if I'm really lucky. Um, but like, are, are those people operating on like, you know, outdated assumptions? Like, first of all, th- v- just as likely like this bubble could just keep going forever. Uh, and they won't let it crash or it could all come crashing down again. Um, or like, you know, if you're paying out that much fucking money, you're on the hook for that much interest that much money just to live in a house in a city like at what point how do you do the math i guess like maybe this is too big a question for this but like how do you even do the math to figure out like is it worth it or should i just rent for the rest of my life you know if you're in that this narrow band of people who like are being who have that choice you know well i mean like that was kind of the position that i was in like i when after you know my landlord situation i genuinely like i've been pre-approved for stuff before and didn't execute on it um because i moved to new york instead but like you know um you know i was considering like getting like a condo in seattle um but i didn't um but you know after the whole landlord thing that happened to me where my landlord raised the rent by twelve hundred dollars i was like well maybe i should like just you know bite the bullet lock lock in buy somewhere in brooklyn and -hmm. you know you know, just at least it would be higher than what I'm paying, but at least I know what I'd be paying and yeah. like, I'd, you know, buy me stability and stuff. But I mean, the issue with that is that I, to think that far ahead, I don't, I mean, you know, I'm a, I might, I might not be like a good representation of what the average person in this position is thinking because, you know, it's doing a lot of, uh, you know, just even just doing this podcast alone, right. Um, you know, knowing the realities of, you know, the direction we as a country, you know, are heading and we just like, you know, personally in class positions working for wages are heading. Um, it's not great. So to have a long term financial commitment, like a 30 year mortgage is kind of scary a little bit. But, you know, also it's like, um, can can we rent um like, can I pay like, you know, like, let's say 500 to maybe even like a thousand dollars more per month, you know, in um in mortgage costs and the housing market doesn't collapse. Cause I still think about 2008. I still think about, um, you know, securing mortgages. I mean, you know, it's pretty fresh in my mind what, you know, my parents went through, what a lot of my friends, you know, parents went through, like ruined their life. And that was all tied to, you know, housing and, you know, making mm-hmm. big bets, um, you know, personal bets uh, on housing. So it's just like, I, there's all of this kind of like, I think um, trauma that's still really like kind of fresh in my mind, at least about, the implication of putting so much on the line, like the biggest decision you'd have to probably make in your life. Um, 
while interest rates every day keep on going up and up and up, right? Which yeah. makes it almost impossible, you know? Well, and I, I think this shows the sort of dilemma or the vice that you get stuck in, right? Because on the one hand, you could say that uh, people trying to buy a house, right, are right in a sense, right? That like, oh, if I buy a house, it'll be cheaper than renting because rents keep going up, right? And like, you know, my, my brother pays like $800 a month for his mortgage, which is well below the cost of a one bedroom rental in the town he lives in at this point, right? Wasn't when he bought the fucking house, but it is now, right? And so in that sense, it's like, that is a smarter move than renting. Of course, you know, now housing is so expensive, you can't fucking buy it. So whatever, right? So maybe instead of taking a $900,000 loan somehow, uh, it makes more sense to uh, rent, right? Because also we live in a world where your jobs are contingent, right? Like you could be fired at any time, more so than any time in the past, right? Uh, yeah. You're never going to work at a company for more than like five years, right? All, all this kind of stuff, right? That makes, you know, locking yourself geographically in a place bad right so oh yeah. okay well maybe renting's the way to go oh don't worry all these investment firms are buying up all this housing for rent uh they're buying it to squeeze every drop of fucking blood out of the working class they can so expect rents to just continue skyrocketing well into the future right and it's one of those things of this is the problem with capitalism right is we try and gamify it and think of what's what's the one weird trick to get you out of it but the reality is yeah. you don't control any of it. So there is no getting out, right? Yeah. You're the rat yeah. in the maze, right? Like there, there's no getting out, right? And and that's that's the that's the key, right? That's the illusion, right? That housing is providing. Well, I mean, you know, is it possible? I mean, we're just thinking about it wrong, like the worries about the market crashing. Like, this doesn't matter to me. I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna be able to get a buy anything but like i mean it feels like maybe the rich guy attitude the the people making these bets are like well you just walk away like if uh if you end up underwater mm -hmm. on something you just go like fuck you to the bank and and like and bail you know right like yeah maybe that's the way to think about it you know what well, I, I imagine actually a lot of these people like uh the the previous uh lori and tim who are definitely like rich by regular standards but are not rich by like you know, American capitalist standards probably have some idea that something went really crazy wrong, that they would somehow be bailed out. And I think some of those people are going to find out that is not the case. Um, yeah. like the, but I mean, for, for people at our level, I mean, I, well, how but, could you I mean, have the illusion get, anybody's going to help you at any point, right? I don't but, even uh, mean yeah. help, like, or being bailed out. Like, you're going to lose what you put into it, but yeah. like, you'd be paying rent anyway. But like, the thing to do is just to like, Maybe it's just to not worry about it and just like stop paying. You know, if if you get underwater, you just stop yeah. paying, and then no, they, they kick you out, or just you, like you leave. short sale the house, or just like not pay and leave. Like yeah, not know. pay and leave. Just like you know, then it's their fucking problem. Now, depending on maybe you paid, maybe that just means you you know. So now you are giving up your equity in the thing, but it's not worth anything anyway. And you um maybe you overpaid for rent for several years. Um, you know, and that was your bad bet, you know, which, you know, it's yeah. not nothing, but it's like, right. yeah. you're talking about paying like 25% more than you would in, uh, over rent or something. Yeah. You know, that's a bet to make, but yeah. it's like, you don't have to be saddled. You don't really have to be saddled with, um, you know, like a massive debt like that. If you're not, if, if you're willing to just cut and move on, you know? Yeah. If we're doing financial advice corner, the best advice you could have gotten in 2008, and I knew people who did this, and so this is what you really should have done 
which is if you knew you weren't gonna be able to make your housing payments, if you knew you're gonna be underwater, stop, stop paying immediately and yeah. don't move, right? Yeah. Just stay yeah. until the sheriff forces you out, right? Yep. Which will take years, right? Yeah. And yeah. and we gave that advice too during the pandemic. It's like if you can't pay rent because of the pandemic conditions or whatever, you should not even try. Like, don't even bother. Like, your landlord's not going to have sympathy for you if you paid half your rent or whatever, right? They're still going to try yeah, and evict you, right? Yeah, so it's save, like, the, save the money. So save the money, right? They can't evict you in the moment, right? Save the money, you know, and just stop paying immediately, right? And as far as, like, you know, advice for people at our income level, that's the only advice, right? Which is, <laughs> mm-hmm. if you can't pay it, you shouldn't. Just don't, right? There's other advice, but you got to buy a little red book for it. <laughs> All right. So let's hear a little bit more here. So... Uh, This is quoting some, uh, again, real estate freak uh, in the Charlotte area. Quote, the more that investors buy up entire communities and turn them into rental communities, people don't have a choice anymore. Oh, you don't say. (laughs) (laughs) They either can't afford to buy anymore or there's nothing to buy. A map compiled by Mecklenburg County, which includes Charlotte, shows a sea of dots signifying corporate ownership throughout the area. The exception is a pie-slice-shaped segment extending out from downtown Charlotte. This historically wider, wealthier neighborhoods, often referred to as the Wedge. More than 93% of homes purchased by corporations as of May 2021 were bought for under $300,000. Many of them were in predominantly black neighborhoods. Quote, it's really difficult. Let's let's pause on that for a second. Okay, so. We talked about driving up the high end of the market, right? And mm-hmm. people buying them as investment assets and stuff. I think the story of the New York Times is highlighting something that we're, have, hasn't been told as much, which is investment companies seeing the immiseration of the population generally are buying up the whole low end of the market, right? And turning it into extremely high rent rentals, right? And as sort of disgusted Charlotte that whole thing about the map was that none of those purchases are in the white wedge, right? (laughs) They are all in black neighborhoods where people are Mm -hmm. being converted from homeowners into renters, essentially a rental market Katrina, an investment Katrina is happening across America, right? Almost as if hurricane, almost as if new Orleans in Katrina was a laboratory for the modern American city and how to run it. Uh, I mean, extremely grim shit, uh, but there's always you can always put a cherry on, you know, a turd here. And uh, we got a guy from the National Rental Home Council to do so. Well, it's really difficult to make the case that a handful of companies that own 300,000 homes <laughs> across the country really have the ability to influence things like home prices and rental rates. <laughs> mm. Uh, uh- I gotta say, I feel that is an easy case to make, I actually. Think that you made the case. Guys, they only own like 300,000 homes. A handful of companies owning 300,000 homes. <laughs> I mean, what's the other, like, what's the, what's the alternative here? Like, what's the, v, what's the conventional view that this new uh, idea is challenging? That, like, <laughs> that the housing market is actually, like, created and and uh managed by a rational invisible hand that just like works or something like i, I think the option of going the, no 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 check it out look it might be uh you know forces of uh ma- major capital 
I think maybe his response would be, uh, the actual answer is, uh, don't worry about it. Yeah. Guys, just yeah. look. No reason to look into things, okay? I mean, like, yeah, I think, I think it, it was it kind of like an own, like, it was like, a, oh, it's only 300,000 in the entire country. Like, how do you think that, that like, market yeah. fundamentals would not be juiced? That's not cornering the housing market. That's such a small sliver, right? There's millions of homes in America, and they only have 300,000. Like, that's, I think, what he's actually getting at. But, um, I mean, markets react to um, indicators, right? And if there's a trend on like buying up 300,000 homes in the span of like, you know, a few years um, in all cash, that is going to inform the broader housing market. That's going to inform the broader rental market and markets are going to react to that, right? And price in this increased like, you know, um, buying because that's, it implies that it's not just over. They're not stopping at 300,000. I'm sorry. Well, our, also, it's it's this is capitalism. It's not a conspiracy of like one corporation or investor. It's a class. It's it's a all the, whatever that this you know entity that owns the three hundred thousand homes is doing. They're doing exactly the same thing as everybody, every other investor in real estate is yep. is doing. Mm-hmm. No, Blackstone yeah, just what, bought like a whole, UCLA's like student housing, and I think like Stanford's like student housing. Awesome. Um, like <laughs> you know, Blackstone shit. is becoming California like, rocks. Yeah, they're becoming the landlords <laughs> for like you know um, like big university housing. Like and they're just dorms acquiring. Yeah, dorms, and they're like acquiring these like, portfolios outright, like as a private placement. And so you know, <laughs> the strategy is to just buy up a ton of uh, real estate all over the place. Um, either in all cash or buying portfolios like in smaller and like consolidating them into one. Right. And yeah, yeah. you don't have to do the Jeff Bezos move of getting a huge amount of capital together in one place to uh, monopolize a market over time. That's like, that's the real, that's the God tier move, but it's not necessary to do that to, to become God emperor of the world. You just have to be a part of the class of investors changing uh, the nature of ownership in the market. So it doesn't have to be one entity buying up all of the housing in America. It has to be a bunch of private equity who have the same interests exactly transferring ownership from a different class that has opposed interests a the what was the american middle class of the last century that owned a shitload of the housing uh by the end of the 20th century owned a shitload of the housing in this country and has different uh interests financial political and otherwise and relative to the housing so and you essentially accomplish the same thing because it's about a class position it's uh, so you don't, you know, rather than it being one, you know, Jeff Bezos entity, all these people get all the benefits of monopolizing the housing market because their interests are all the same. It's that simple. You just, yeah. you know, you're just changing uh, the class that owns it. Yeah. And the story, I mean, I, I, I cut it out for time, but the story has an interesting anecdote where one of the women they interview who lives in one of these, you know, traditionally black neighborhoods that's you know poor and things like that. Uh, it, but has high rates of home ownership. Was talking about mm-hmm. how basically one day they all had sheets of paper on their door, you know, stuck to their door, offering to buy their homes, right? And she's like, you know, I didn't want to sell mine, but a lot of people around me, 
maybe they're a little underwater on their mortgage, right? Or maybe they just need money, right? Which is a very common thing in America, <laughs> uh, of course, took the offers, right? And again, you're seeing a transfer, as you're saying, right, of housing stock, right? From uh, it was the Mellon quote during the Depression, you know, during yeah. you know, crises or when assets go back to the rightful owners, right? I mean, this is sort of what capital's doing. It's like, look, the post-war housing boom was a blip. Now we're going back to what housing really is, which is the 19th century. You yeah. either rent or die in the woods somewhere, right? Those are the those are your choices. And it doesn't doesn't matter that it's not like one giant conglomerate investor buying it all up. Yeah. Now I will say, uh, so this reporter does uh, a little actual reporting here after allowing the real estate guy to just blow, uh, you know, a ton of smoke up people's asses. Uh, they mention real estate investors bought a record 18.4% of the homes that were sold in the United States in the fourth quarter of 2021, up from 12.6% a year earlier. Now, I got to say, 18% of any market is a pretty big chunk of the market. That is yeah. kind of crazy. Yeah, <laughs> The kind of chunk that allows you to control some things. But they say that, you know, they mentioned in, you know, some markets, especially the relatively affordable Sunbelt metro areas, their share is far higher. In Charlotte and Atlanta, investors purchased more than 30% of the homes sold in the fourth quarter of 2021. In Jacksonville, Florida, Las Vegas, and Phoenix, they bought just under 30%. Housing industry representatives note that these numbers, which define investors as any institution or business, represent purchases by smaller Local owners, too, who may own just one or two buildings through a limited liability company. Mm. At, do not forget the mom and pop corporations that also buy massive tracts of real estate. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to take the pills out of their mouths. I they got one trick, right? They got they got one. What it works every time. So why, yeah, why, why not change it? it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. But, uh, we're back to mom and pop uh, real estate investment firms. <laughs> well i i think the the uh punchline i guess is that we are seeing a historic shift in the united states of housing stock and how it's allotted right which has been happening for the last several decades right but we're we're really coming to a quantity to quality kind of shift here and uh the article's right we are the losers <laughs> if you're listening to this podcast almost certainly you are one of the losers. <laughs> so uh, I don't know. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. Get a boat. It's the real That's answer. Yeah. As we've been saying this show for years, take to the sea. All right. Seasteading <laughs> is our only hope at this point. So get whatever floats, get in the water. <laughs> Flame your seastead. Well, guys. It wasn't all bad news. All right. We had uh, two new patrons this month. Hey. Uh, Clover and MW. Welcome to the fold. Join the Discord if you can figure out how to. Uh, (laughs) I don't know. Go to Patreon. I'm sure there's instructions. But it is fantastic. Join the Discord. Lots of lively conversation going on in there. Uh, Not that I'm ever in there. But check it out. All right. With that said, uh, tell your friends and family, join our Patreon. Help us out, guys. I know we want to get the seasteading operation up and functional. For that, we need more Patreon money. We just blew all of our money on the Wachowski auction. 
buying <laughs> a Chippendale uh, figurine signed by Susan Sarandon. So we're broke again. All right. Yeah. Hang on. Hang on. Money. Yeah. The figurine? I bought a Chippendale dining table. It Was that? Oh, no. <laughs> we're broke again. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> Sorry. Miscommunication. Uh, it'll happen. It'll happen. All right, everybody. We'll see you all next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.